Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Hello, everyone. Today we're joined by Theodore P. Savis. Theodore Savis is a licensed attorney, a former adjunct college instructor, entrepreneur, award-winning author, and publisher. He's the co-founder and majority partner of Savis Baby, an award-winning independent book trade publishing company that specializes in military and general history, and specifically the American Civil War. Ted also writes and speaks about Civil War topics, as well as the American Revolution and World War II German U-boats. Today, Ted joins us to talk about his publishing company, what it's like to write and publish Civil War books, his extensive collection of Civil War books, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this discussion and learn something. <laughs> Hello, everybody. So today we are joined by Theodore Savis. How are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm excited for this conversation. Uh, this will be an interesting one, a little different than talking, moving pieces on a battlefield chessboard. Um, we're going to be talking about publishing today. You have your own uh, Civil War publishing company. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to dig into that, hear about some of the books you've published. Um, but before we do all that, uh, we want to know about you. So tell us a little bit mm -hmm. about yourself. Um, how long have you been interested in the Civil War? Where did this love come from? Sure, yeah. So so I was born in uh, Iowa, North Iowa, right below the border. Grew up in, grew up in North Iowa for about 27 years or so. Um, big Viking fan. It was the only channel we could get in back there was <laughs> Minneapolis. So became a Viking fan. Still am six and one getting it done so far. This <laughs> that year. hurts. I'm a Browns fan. So. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so sorry. Although you guys did beat the Bengals. That's right? true. That's true. Uh, which was not, not really expected. So, um, yeah, I got interested in the civil war really early. I didn't have any family that fought in the war. All my family is, uh, we're all Greek and we all came over turn of the century. Um, but my grandfather came home when I was about 11 from a yard sale with volume one of Lee's lieutenants. I have no idea where he got it, how he got it, why he got it. Uh, I read it. Uh, we grew up out in the country. So I was reading it outside, walking around um, and uh, finished it out there, finished volumes two and three in New York. Uh, in, uh, in When we used to go there to visit my family's from there. And fell in love with the civil war when I was really young. And since that time I've been reading it and studying it and collecting and, and uh, that's sort of how it started. So uh, I got a history degree from the university of Northern Iowa and a teaching certificate. I taught high school for a while uh, for about a year, year and a half before I went to uh, law school. I was in grad school for most of my master's waiting to get into law school, went to law school, graduated in 86 from the University of Iowa, practiced law in Silicon Valley for about 12 years as a litigator. Wow. And during that time, I'm still licensed. During that time, I started a publishing kind of, uh, company, sort of by accident. It's kind of funny. And it just took off from there. That's very cool. Um, some similarities there. I'm a teacher as well. So okay. so uh, what, what got you? Did you want to teach and then just switch to law? Why did you switch to law? Yeah, I actually, I didn't really realize how much I really enjoyed teaching when I, when I first started student teaching, I needed to do something because I, I was on the road with a rock band for a while, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, 
had the bus, had all that kind of thing and, and did the five states and all that and backed up other bands. And and then I finally put put my bass down and decided I better get you know more serious about what I was doing. And and I needed a teaching certificate a few hours to graduate. So I got that and started, you know, student teach, uh, student taught for a while and just loved it. And so I went back and, and I taught for most of a year or so, a year and a half. And and I really enjoyed it, but uh, it didn't pay enough money. And I didn't really see how I could survive. Uh, I then. can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. And I just, you know, I knew I wanted to make enough to at least uh, do the things I wanted to do because I had expensive hobbies even then. <laughs> and uh, and so I went on to law school. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. E- even practicing law, I didn't really know for sure that's what I wanted to do. But I went to grad school, went to law school and and law school turned out to be a pretty good gig. And uh, and practicing law was, was was OK. I was it was fortunate. I did really well doing it. Mm-hmm. So I, like I say, I, I made money practicing law, which allows me to publish and go broke. Very cool. Well, yeah, yeah I, I I felt the I felt the pain with the the six and zero comment, and then with the teaching salary because I know it's it's a struggle. So it is. Yeah. You mentioned that you collect. What kind of Civil War things do you collect? Really, only books. Um, I don't uh, I don't collect uh, you know any memorabilia or anything like that. I don't, I just. I'm an inveterate collector in terms of, I just don't like to throw stuff away. My wife goes crazy. And so I've got a nice library. It's a big library. Um, it's a dedicated library in a music room. It's really big. So we, our band practices in there. Maybe we can get back to music sometime later today too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, and my library's in there. So it's all sort of self-contained. My man cave is music and, and, and books. So I don't know how many books I have, maybe 3,000, I suppose. Um, uh, Most of them are Civil War. I've got probably several hundred on World War II. I'm a big uh, U-boat guy, submarine guy, uh, and ancient history. Very cool. Well, before we talk about your publishing, I got to ask, if you have 3,000 books, you're an avid reader, collector, uh, what are some of your favorite Civil War books? Yeah, that's... um, that's really hard because I, I like so many that I've read. <laughs> I don't know. I probably my, you know, my Lee's Lieutenants remains with me just because it's one of the, it's the first thing I really read. Uh, I, I really like that. I loved Shelby Foote's trilogy because I can give that trilogy to other people. And I have who want to learn about the Civil War because it's easy to read. It's sweeping. It's, it's beautifully written. Um, and it shows people the breadth and depth of the Civil War. And it allows them to sort of find something that, that really triggers their interest. So I like that from that perspective. Uh, Grant's memoirs are, I think, one of my favorite sets of memoirs are, are, are Grant's memoirs. Um, and I love battle studies. I mean, Coddington, of course, you can't. Who doesn't love Coddington's Gettysburg? Uh, I love a lot of um, a lot of Bob Crick stuff. He's one of my favorite authors. He didn't write enough. I wish he had written more. Um, so, you know, battle studies, if I have to say, what do I like to read the most? It's probably strategy tactics and battle studies. Mm, that's interesting. Have, have you published books yourself? Yeah, I've written and published uh, and edited probably 14 books with various publishers. And do those all focus on the Civil War? No, uh, they don't, actually. Uh, one is a guide to the battles of the American Revolution, <clears throat> uh, something I've been interested in since I was a kid, too. And I ended up finding a friend of mine named uh, Dave Dameron, who's also studied the the revolution. And I had started putting together a collection 
of sort of templated information for my own use, like the commanders, the, the time, the date, the weather, the opposing forces, you know, what was the intent of the campaign. And I, and I was doing that for my own benefit. And then it started getting to be so interesting that I was, I decided to write that up into a book form and, and Dave and I did all the maps for it. I think there are 80 maps. Most of them, a lot of these had never been mapped and, uh, and we published it as a guide to the battles of the American revolution. It's still in print. It does very well. Uh, that was, I don't know, 15 years ago. I've got two books on German U-boats that I did. Uh, like I said, that was one of my, one of my interest areas. And, uh, and I've ghostwritten, I don't know, 40 books, Wow, maybe, maybe 50 where I've just, you don't see my name on it, but I've been hired to do it or, or did it for other people or friends and completely wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. What, what about history draws you in? What is it specifically? I know you said you read, Lee's lieutenants when you were young, but is there a certain thing about it that fascinates you? Yeah, it's such a good question, Andy. I, I um, I don't know. I've always been interested in history. I've always been interested in the past. Uh, I I like studying people's lives, what they did, what they contributed, how they did things, uh, to learn from it. And I just I just get drawn to it. Why I'm drawing to the American Civil War, I don't know exactly. Uh, that's the one virus that I've had since it's like a, a kid and I can't get rid of. Right. Uh, there's no vaccine for that. Let me tell you. Um, but I just I like reading, especially about civilizations and and structures that are no longer around. And how did they come to be and, and how did they vanish? Like the Confederacy. I find that just you know fascinating. Um, the British Empire, that sort of thing. Yeah, very cool. Well, tell us a bit about your publishing company. So you said you kind of stumbled in it. How did it come about? Yeah, that's an interesting story. So so I would get up um, in the morning really early when my wife was a, uh, a nurse at the time, and I would get up at 4.30 with her and I'd iron her smock and and she'd go off to work and I'd be not willing to go back to sleep. So I started writing articles for different magazines and things. And so I had an interest in publishing. This was when I was a very young lawyer. And I went to a Civil War conference in Southern California. And Jack Davis, William C. Davis was the, the speaker at the time. Jack and I had become very good friends over the years. And I had read his books and he was the editor of Civil War Times Illustrated back then. And I was very excited the chance to see him. I think this is like 80, 88 maybe. And I met a guy down there named Dave Woodbury and Dave Woodbury was also from the Bay area, California. And we started talking about different things. We formed a round table when we got back to San Jose, it's still going. And I decided that uh, I was tired of reading the same articles in the same, you know, 2000 words that say the same thing in the glossy magazines. And so we started something called civil war regiments, which was a quarterly journal. It, it ran for many years. They did very well. I had no idea. We had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know how to draft maps, how to format, how to design, how to be editors. We didn't know anything. And we just decided to do it. And it was a lot of work. There was no money involved. Um, but, we, you know, we probably broke even over the t over that time. But we started getting book manuscripts in. <clears throat> now, I'm a lawyer at this time, practicing law full time. And so we ended up publishing a couple of books. Um 
Mark Bradley's Battle of Bentonville, which is one of the absolute best uh, uh, battle studies ever ever made, uh, ever written, I think. Uh, we did a collection of essays on the Atlanta campaign that sold out. It did very well. And a couple others. And so pretty soon I've got this publishing company, Savas Woodbury, and I really wasn't expecting this. Uh, we found a distributor and I had you know, basically two suites. I had my publishing suite and my law suite. And it just started growing. And despite my best intentions, it started growing. And my wife uh, had the second child. My wife says, you know, you're working 80 hours a week. Why don't you cut it back to 60? Because this is crazy. She was right. And so I ended up selling my law practice in, in <clears throat> well, I don't know, when, when was it? Like, I took over Savas Woodbury, became Savas Publishing. And I ended up selling my law practice, I think in 2000, 99, 2000, and built Savas Beatty a little bit bigger, uh, Savas uh, Publishing a little bit bigger, and then sold it. And I sold that to... It's a kind of a joint complex kind of deal that basically went to Perseus Books Group in, uh, in in New York, and so for a few years I didn't I didn't publish uh, or practice law. I coached little league baseball and travel teams and and um, ghost wrote books constantly. I became an agent and agents of books. I really enjoyed that lifestyle. Um, and then Cap Beatty, who's the Beatty of Savas Beatty. He was one of my prior authors and we were going to publish his books, but his books went uh, on the Army of the Potomac, went to the new publisher. But we kept in touch. And Cap was a unique uh, SEC class action lawyer in, uh, in in Manhattan. We had never met. So he'd call and we had a lot in common and we talked uh, pretty regularly. And then finally, one day he called me up and he said, listen, I'm going to be in Las Vegas on a, on a case and I want to fly out to California and meet you. I've got an idea. I want to I want to start a publishing company with you. And I was like, nah, I'm not really that interested. <laughs> and he says, yeah, I really want to do this. So he flew out, spent a couple of days, and we talked about how that might come to pass. And it did come to pass. And this was, I think, 2003. And it started in January of 2004. And that's how Savas Baby started. And there we go. Wow. Well, you mentioned getting manuscripts. Were people just sending these into you, like hoping that you would yeah. look at them? That's exactly what they did. It was crazy. I mean, we were we, we published journals uh, and the Civil War Regiment's journals. They're really good. I went back and looked at some the other day. They're actually really good. Uh, people really loved them. And people were looking at those thinking we were a traditional publisher. Mm. And um, we weren't. But we started getting these manuscripts in and I can't, I always see opportunity everywhere. And, and I don't see negatives. I always see opportunity. Drives my wife crazy. To this <laughs> and, and so I saw these and talked to, you know, my old partner and um, we started to do so, well, let's publish them. And we didn't even have a distributor at the time. It was crazy, but we did it. Our wives helped us mail stuff out and, and cataloging. It was, it was pretty insane at the time, but we did and it was successful. And that's kind of how it started. So was this journal that you did, was this almost like a magazine you guys put out quarterly, you said? Yeah, it's a six by nine journal. I might I might have a copy. Hold on just a second. I've got a copy okay. over here. Yeah, so here's one, um, volume seven, number one. It's a, it's a uh, this was Chickamauga Chattanooga edition. Oh, very cool. Not all of them were themed. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like a, it's like a scholarly journal. Okay. Footnotes, book reviews original articles, original maps, 
you know, that, that, that sort of thing. Very interesting. Yeah. You guys and uh, and they were, they were, uh, we, we, we didn't publish them as timely as we wish we had, but we did six full years, which is 24 issues. And then volume seven started. And that's when the publishing company sold. And uh, they didn't take those. They didn't want the journals because they weren't set up to do journals. But the problem was, is that the journals and the publishing went sort of hand in hand for us financially. Mm-hmm. So I decided, well, I just wasn't going to publish it anymore. And we had, I don't know how many subscribers. We had a lot of subscribers. Each, each edition, you know, almost sold out. And um, and so we have calls for it to get it back. Uh, but we just don't have the time to do it. But uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And how did you grow these things? How did you get awareness for them? Well, back then, of course, there was no internet, right? For <laughs> for for the like first half of it, which is crazy thinking about. You can't imagine what it was like publishing. Yeah, books right. <laughs> it was crazy, but we would buy mailing lists from the magazines. You'd, you'd you'd buy a mailing list, and then you'd had a little catalog and a flyer, and you'd mail them out and do it the old traditional way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So yeah. So you found so much success in Civil War publishing. You were able to walk away from a law practice? Yeah. That's amazing. But I didn't have, but I understand I did not have the success when I walked away. I had, I had a small company that, you know, basically broke even um, because we only had, I don't know, 15, 20 books or whatever at the time. But I saw the potential and I'm a firm believer. My grandfather ran uh, restaurants. And he was used to tell me, do what you love because everything else will follow, including money. And you'll support yourself if you really love what you're doing because you, you want to go to bed at night. I mean, I remember him clearly telling me this. I was about 14. He said, you want to go to bed at night, so happy to go to sleep because you get to wake up and do what you're doing sooner. Mm. And he says, it's that way. It's never a job because you love it and you do it for free. So find something you love that you would do for free, turn that into your career, you'll be successful. He was absolutely right. I mean, he was right. I didn't find that in the law. I was very successful in the law, but I didn't go to bed not, you know, because I couldn't wait to be in court the next day. I liked it, but I didn't love it. It wasn't a passion. And I'm a passionate guy and I have to really be passionate about what I like to do because I know this is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. Mm-hmm. And so I want to spend my time doing what I love to do or I don't want to do it. And it's really hard for me to mask if I don't like what I'm doing. because it's pretty <laughs> obvious. Uh, or if I don't like who I'm with, like my wife's like, please smile and pretend like you're going to like going to this get together. <laughs> I'm like, OK. Um, so so I knew that I had a potential to do well with publishing. I saw it as an opportunity and I knew where my heart was and I believed in what I could do. And so that's that's really why I did it. That's amazing. I I don't think many people would would assume that you could find so much success with something like that. But I think people are hungrier for history and things like that than we realize. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people don't think there's a hunger out there, but there definitely is. How how did you get into writing? You said that you were writing articles for journals and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So I I used to write you know articles and short stories as a kid, uh, which I've found recently and was surprised how bad they were. I used to have good memories <laughs> in my head as how good they were there. <clears throat> um, but I wrote some short stories and different kinds of things. I like to write. I wasn't a great writer, but I like to write. I had def- defined my voice pretty well by the time I started law school. 
um, law school sort of ruins you because you write a certain way in law school and it really makes you a bad writer. It, it, if you want to be a non-legal writer, it, it sort of takes away the sort of your voice uh, and you become sort of more like a robot writer. And so after law school, I had to reteach myself how to write narrative form for, for, you know, for other people to enjoy. Um, so I started that with, with magazines and different kinds of things. And I just, if you want to write well, you should be a really, really avid good reader. And you can see what your voice might sound like, what you like to read. And pretty soon you study the page, you study the structure of writing. Uh, and then you, you want to mimic that. And then you want to mimic that into your own voice. So it's your style, which is hard to do, but it can be done. And I worked really hard doing that. And I have to say that Civil War Regiments, which took so much time and effort, it taught me how to be a really good editor. It taught me how to write really fast. Uh, and, and it taught me how to structure things, how to organize, how to, we had to learn how to design and how to use publishing software. We didn't know what we were doing. Dave Woodbury would come down on a Friday night from San Francisco and he'd stay till Sunday. Wow. And we did it like three nights, three weekends, you know, a, a week, a month. And it was just, we just were in it and we studied it and we did it. And we had to learn everything because we didn't know anything. And that's really made it possible for me to do what I do today. If I hadn't done that journal, I would have never gotten into publishing and done what we did today. Well, you're a music guy and I want to talk about music a little later, but it sounds almost like a, like a songwriter, right? You cut copy the people that you love, but you got to do it in your voice. Absolutely. It's really similar. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can, yeah. not everyone's going to be Bob Dylan, but you can take his style. You get Bruce Springsteen or something like that. That's right. Yeah, so. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, well, so how many authors do you guys have at the moment? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the girls here were saying, I, I've got, uh, I've got, I don't know, five or six people that work in the office here with me. I would say, we were talking about that the other day, about well, how many how many books have we published? And I said, I don't know. And, and I've had customers ask me and they're, they kind of scratched their head. They say, well, don't you keep track? And I said, you know, I, I kept track when there were 30 and a hundred and 200. I have no idea what it is now. Wow. Um, but how many, uh, we've worked with several hundred, you know, over, over time. And so I know we have several hundred books. I, I don't, but I don't know how many, I, I don't know. Amazing. And how do you go about finding these authors or do they come to you? Mostly they come to us. Um, we have a submission program, you know, through our website and they uh, submit their manuscript and we accept it or reject it, to, you know, based on a bunch of things. The We get probably, depends, we get probably at least one a day, sometimes two a day. And we only publish, you know, 25, 30 books a year. So it's hard to know. It's it's amazing how many don't get published, right? Mm -hmm. But they just flood in, and not all of them are appropriate, not all of them are Civil War, but they're or, or we publish the Revolutionary War and some other things too, but mostly Civil War. We craft. There are a lot of books we've got that I've done that that I've crafted together with an idea. So like like the Lee Day by Day book we did uh, last year with the Charlie Knight. That's an idea I had uh, for a long time that Lee Day by Day needed to be done. And I approached Charlie with it because I knew Charlie would be really good at, at that. 
it's a very unique sort of piece of work. And I pitched it to him and he agreed. And he wrote one of the most magnificent books we've ever published. Um, but that's an idea that I had in my head that I could see on paper. And then I found the right author to, to put it together. And, and, Lee, and Charlie did a great job. But there are several books like that. A lot of books we've done like that. And then a lot of repeat authors, they, you know, they, we publish them, they come back and they say, Hey, Ted, you know, I've got this idea to do this book I've been working on. Would you like to publish it? And once you've published, it's much easier to continue to be published Mm -hmm. because you've got a foot in the door. You've got a track record. You've got a brand. Your talent stack is, is bigger and fuller. So um, primarily the three ways are, I think of the ideas Authors hit us up through the, you know, over the transom, basically, and they're, I don't know who they are, and repeat authors come back to us with with ideas. Interesting. Well, can you tell us a bit about the Lead Day by Day book? Yeah, I can, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I, um, I don't know where it is. We've got so many books now, I can't even find them anymore. <laughs> That's uh, a good problem to have. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. I used to know where every book was. So the Lead Day by Day book takes mostly primary source material and it tracked Lee every day during the civil war. So who, what, when, where, why, where was he? What was he doing? Who was he with? What's the main thrust of what happened during the day? What's he thinking? And then the footnotes. So the entries are anywhere from two sentences to many paragraphs. The footnotes are gigantic. And it's an oversized book. It's a seven by 10 book. It's 500 pages. It's big. But the footnotes are really detailed and the money is in the footnotes. And so it's his staff officers and their opinions and other things that relate to the entry. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to read a general entry, you can read it. And then if you want to read the footnote, which gives you all kinds of information and contrary information and that sort of stuff, it's in the footnote. And so it's loaded with a lot of great photos in a gallery, uh, a lot of original maps in, in a gallery. And it's it's just tremendous. It's it's a reference source that you, if you really are writing anything about the Civil War now and Lee is involved in any meaningful way, you have to consult this book. And how long did that take to write? Took him about four years. Wow. And, and I, I was, I had forgotten about it for a while. And uh, Charlie, after about two years, says, oh, by the way, I'm making great progress. And here's where I'm going with this. I can forget about Charlie because I know he just follows through. He's, he's <laughs> I published Charlie. And I know the quality of his work. And then after about three and a half or four years, he said, OK, I'm done with my manuscript. I'm going to send it to you. And uh, and he'd sent it to me and it, I was blown over. I was he had checked with me earlier about style and how long and how we're, how we're setting things up. So we both were on the same page. And then he just went off and did it. And it's, it's magnificent. So you said three and a half to four years to publish this book. Is that typical of how long it takes? Well, it took him three and a half, three and a half or four years to write it. Uh, publishing, I mean, we can get some manuscripts in and we, we can get them published fairly quickly within six months sometimes. Usually it's a couple of years. I mean, it the publishing business works in cycles. It works in two six-month cycles. January to, to June is considered the spring cycle. And then the fall cycle is is July 1st to, to the end of the year. <clears throat> and you're working a full six months plus ahead all the time. So 
for example, our spring season of 2023, all those books are are uh, at our distributor in terms of all the, the data, all the covers are done so they can organize them that way and start positioning them and selling them. Our fall list of 2023 is almost done and spoken for already. So if we get a manuscript in next month, regardless of how good it is, the authors say, "We, I want to get this published in time for the spring anniversary of whatever. It doesn't work that way. I mean, unless you're some gigantic press and you have a lot of pull with, with the way distrib- distribution works, it doesn't work that way. So you have to be way in advance or you can't get books placed in terms of able to be picked up by Amazon or Barnes and Noble or the different stores and the distributors and the wholesalers. There's a whole chain of people behind you and everybody has to be working at the same speed and schedule or it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a, it's a very complex process that the average person never sees because it's not what they do. Right. Do you, find difficulty getting different topics since there's so many books on the civil war or do you find that there's constantly a new angle we have no problem getting topics um like i say we get so many different manuscripts it (laughs) this is interesting the most important thing i look for personally because i'm the acquisitions editor here is whether it's original research and deeply researched. Mm-hmm. So I'm not talking about secondary research. I'm not interested in any of that. Is it is it primarily researched in terms of archival stuff, letter collections, diaries, newspapers? What forms the bulk or the the the, the you know that big nugget upon which everything is based? Mm-hmm. And if it has good, fresh, deep original research, and it's got a different angle on something, I'm all for it. How well it's written is not as important to me. Mm. Most people think it's got to be, everything's got to be phenomenally written. Well, no, because we have editors. There are ways to make your writing improved. Uh, the main thing is, is, is it, is it crafted pretty well? Uh, and is it, is it researched well? And is your thought process, your thinking, the way you quote, is are, are you quoting accurately? Those kinds of things. The actual writing itself, that that's like the least of my concerns. And I tell that to other publishers, they freak out, they go crazy. Um, <laughs> they're wrong. I'm just telling you, I'm, I know I'm a contrarian and I run with scissors, but they're wrong. <laughs> and which is why you see so many presses trying to find really good material. Mm-hmm. And you see Savas Beatty knocking it out of the park with book after book. Uh, it's because I don't obsess about whether their commas are correct when I get their first manuscript. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite book that you've published so far? <laughs> That's like asking which of my children I love. The most. <laughs> you know, I, I I like different books for different reasons. I mean, I like I like virtually all of our books because I get to hand select them, right? I mean, I I get to curate those, I get to walk them through, I get to assign them to the editors. Um, I help design the dust jackets with our with our designer. Uh, I, I oversee production in terms of I, I see what Veronica is doing and Sarah doing with production. It's all on sort of a centralized system. So I get to I get to walk everything through. Let's call it a gestation process since I talked about children. And and so they're all sort of favorite in different ways. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lee Day by Day book remains one of my favorites um, that, that I did with Sabbath publishing. I really loved 
our last rays of departing hope on the Wilmington campaign by Chris Fonville. That remains, uh, that and the Secessionville book we did with Pat Brennan uh, remain two of my early books that I really, really think back and think fondly of because they're really good. Uh, let me look over here. I, I'm really, Dave, Dave Powell, I mean, I, 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 I'm going to start mentioning authors and then people are going to go, hey, you didn't mention me on your podcast. <laughs> I, I really enjoy what Dave Powell's doing because he writes campaign studies, which I love, and he writes them at such a magnificent research level and great prose that uh, they, they are really some of my favorites. So his Ch Chickamauga campaign, his trilogy is phenomenal. He's writing what looks like it's going to be a five-volume history on the Atlanta campaign. Wow. And as he says, he goes, you're the only publisher that would ever publish these things that in you know, five volumes. And, and I'm like, yeah, I am. But I understand the market, and, and I know people are really going to love these. And they're a real contribution. So, you know, that that's all fine with me. I think one of the other books that I have that I really love and fell, fell in love with is The War Outside My Window. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. No, I'm not. It's um, it's a it's a somebody pointed it out to me. Jan Kroon, the editor, sent, sent me and I didn't know her. And she sent me a full Washington Post page on this young kid from Georgia's diaries that were in the Library of Congress. And he was a, a, a young male teenager, noncombatant, started at 12 or 13 and wrote till he was like 17 from secession all the way to the end of war and beyond from inside a major slaveholding house. And wow. he was crippled and sick and extremely educated. He read Shakespeare. He spoke Latin. He played chess. He was well roped into everything you can imagine. He was like a blogger back in the civil war days. Right. <laughs> and so you saw what the inside of a slaveholding house, how it operated what they were thinking, what they were eating, what they were drinking. And so when I saw this in the Washington Post um, and how the Library of Congress thought they were the most magnificent holding that they, one of the jewels, and she called it was one of their jewels. I thought, well, this had to have been published because this article was several years old. And so I started looking around it. They had not been published. I couldn't find a word on them. So Jan said, you know, she'll transcribe them and write them, but she didn't know the military aspects. And how to, how to add the footnotes there. So I did all the military aspects of the footnotes. I said, I'll do it. And so we put out a, a press release that we were on the way to publishing this book, even though we didn't even have a word on paper. We <laughs> wanted to knock anybody else out of the marketplace in case they were working on these because they were we, we thought we could beat them. And, um, and so we published it. It's called The War Outside My Window. And it's a magnificent book. It won a couple of awards. And his house, Leroy was sick and he ended up dying after the war. And what's interesting is, is that he didn't know what he had, but he wrote about the subcontext of his illness all the way through the book and his treatment. And it's the only book in existence today. It's, it's a lot of firsts. It's the only book where somebody with spinal tuberculosis and it came out the back, the sores came out of his back and he was treated. It was horrible. And he wrote about it. He was in pain all the time. But it was the it's the only one in history that we've that anybody's ever found that treats the disease and what they were doing back then on a daily basis to treat that disease and the progression of the disease. 
you get it for a month, you get it in a couple letters, you get people in a sanitarium as they're getting well. But this is from the beginning to the end, all the way up to the time of his death. And he didn't know he was dying till the very end. Wow. And we've got letters from his mom that talk about it. It's really, it's really tragic. And it's also the only book written by a, a non-combatant from the inside of a, ho- of a slaveholding house from the secession to the, to the end. And so you see the, at the peak of their society down to the end. And it's, it's magnificent. It's called the war outside my window. That That's one of my favorites. And I'll tell you one more really quick thing. His house still exists. It's called the 1842 Inn in Macon, Georgia. It's a giant bed and breakfast. And we did the book launch there in the room where his body was, was treated to be buried. Wow. And, and, and it spilled out into the hallway and down the front steps. We had so many people there. It was just incredible. And we stayed overnight in the house. And uh, I got to go up the attic through a secret staircase that where they carried him in November, because he couldn't walk at that time, November of 64, up to the roof. So when he wrote his entry about shelling in the distance for the Battle of Macon, it was really just sort of a little skirmish. Uh, I got to stand on that part of the roof where he where he was held wow. uh, and saw it. And, and it was really terrific. And so, yeah, that's that might be my favorite book of all time, only because there are so many different angles to it. That's incredible. And it sounds like you're not just publishing these books and getting to read and get all this information. You're also getting experiences along with this. Is that probably your favorite experience publishing or have you had other ones? That's one of my favorites. Um, yeah, that's that that ranks right up there. One of my other ones was a book uh, I put together a bunch of authors on U-boats and I edited the collections called Silent Hunters, German U-boat commanders in World War II because I knew a bunch of German U-boat commanders. I just started meeting them. I wanted to talk about it. I, I just thought I like the naval aspects of, of warfare. And so I met uh, Eric Topp, who was the third leading U-boat ace. I met uh, uh, Jürgen Ersten, who was a, a top U-boat ace and a planner of campaigns. And I w- went to Germany. I went to their crew reunions. Uh, I went to Topp's crew reunion. I stayed overnight in his house a couple of times. Wow. We did book signings together. Uh, he wrote the foreword to it. And he, no, I'm sorry, he wrote the forward to the second one. I asked him for an article for the first one. I asked him for a forward on the first one, and he sent me instead something in German, and it was a long article. And I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I read enough military German at the time that I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, oh my God, is this what I think it is? And it's, a long article on his relationship with another U-boat commander. They were best of friends and his other U-boat commander died off of uh, Gibraltar and top was rumored to have written this on a U-boat campaign on the next campaign while he was at sea. And he really did, but he had never published it. So the rumors were he had written this long article about, about their relationship and the the U-boat war and all that, but he sent it to me to publish. And uh, so I had it, uh, had it translated in Eric Rust, who was a professor who knew Top, um, added the footnotes, and we published it. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah, very that cool. was that was phenomenal. Yeah. Well, so it sounds like obviously a ton goes into this publishing um, for the authors, for you guys. If someone's listening and they think I want to write a book, where do they start their research at? Here's what they should do. I have. A- as of last night, I held my first class. It's called Write, 
W R I T E now. And the link is at the top of the Savas Beatty page. I have been asked for years and years and years, and I get asked every couple of days by somebody, what about this? What do I do about this? I got this kind of research. Where do I go? I don't know how to start. I've started, but I don't know how to continue. Uh, I've written, but I'm too afraid to pull the trigger. Um, you know, this kind of all these questions. I'll confess to the listeners. I've asked you. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, you have. I, and, I sent you, you know, a message. Yeah. Yeah, you have. And, and it's not that I don't want to answer. I, I love, I love it. Right. I love helping people, but the problem is running a company. Uh, and I'm also a co-founder of a, of a tech startup in Silicon Valley. And I'm down there half the time working mm. on that. It's in beta now. It's called CubeStream. And, and so I'm very busy. And so I, it's, it's really hard to keep up with all that. And so I finally decided, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to start a class and, and charge a really, really low fee to weed out people who really don't have an interest and start the sessions. And I've designed about five or six sessions and they build on each other and they answer all these kinds of questions. And so it's for fiction, nonfiction, civil war, non-civil war, experienced authors, new authors, middle authors, uh, and it's it's answers all those questions and builds on it. And it's just an insider's tips to where I know you'll save months or years of time mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of aggravation and get you on the right path with a blueprint that works for you. And uh, it's not magic. It's not anything. Well, you know what a black belt is? Andy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you don't. A black belt is a white belt who didn't stop. <laughs> That's true. Right. And so you just if you want to be an author and you want to do X, Y, Z, well, that's fine. You just have to start and then you have to not stop. Mm. That's all it is. But you have to have a path. And so what I do in these classes, I give you the right path for you. And then it's like, oh, okay, that's what I need. Yeah. And so if anybody, if you're interested in that, just jump on there, click the link and 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 take the class. I did my first class. There's a hundred people on the class. Um, and uh, it was about 90 minutes and it went really well. And I got a lot of great feedback and people really seemed to like it. And I'm very excited about doing it. So that, I'll, I'll make sure to put the link in the, uh, show's description for anyone who's interested. Yeah, that'd be great. And I'm going to repeat the classes, by the way, they're going to. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. So, yeah. so someone can join again if they miss it. Yep. All right. Perfect. Yeah. So I'll put that in there. So I got to ask, we talked about this before we started music. You love yeah. music. So tell us a bit yeah. about that. I know it's Civil War, but I always slip music in because I love it. So, yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah. Music is my life in a different way. So, my earliest recollection is my mom playing the violin, her friend playing the cello, and my sister, older sister, playing piano. That's one of my, I was maybe three, and I would lay there on the floor and, and listen to them. My mom was an opera singer in Hollywood and made records when she was 16, and she sang all her life. Um, she's magnificent. My sister is just retired as a music instructor, phenomenal vocalist and pianist. In fact, she even sang at Carnegie Hall. She's with her group. She's uh, just terrific. My brother's a guitarist and I played classical piano for 12 years and played keyboards and bands in, in the Midwest when I was a teenager. And you were talking about other musicians earlier. I um, went to a concert in a ballroom I don't remember the year, 75, 76. And, and I saw this band and there weren't that many people there. I was kind of surprised. Went to the stage and they had all these marshals all stacked up. I, I didn't even know who the band was. I was dating some girl at this lake and she said, hey, let's go see this band. It's like $3. I'm like, okay. So we went and 
this guy comes out, they start playing. It absolutely blew me away. And it was Rush. Wow. And I'm, you know, four feet away from Getty Lee watching him play a, a 4001 Rick. And I thought, <laughs> okay, I got to play that instrument. I've never touched a bass in my life. So I found a bass. I found a 4000 Rick then. And it was like 100 miles away. I drove to the music store. <laughs> and the guy says, uh, you, you want to play it? And I said, no, I don't know how to play it. And he said, well, you, you don't want to pay this much money for this kind of a guitar if you've never played it. I said, no, I'll play it. I, I know what I'm going to do. And um, so I took it home and learned the bass. And uh, and I still play, of course. And uh, so we stopped playing in college. And seven years ago, after 30 years, uh, my brother and I, who live, he lives close to me, uh, we just started talking about getting a band together. So we got a band together. It's called Arminius. And it's on Facebook. You can see us and hear us. And we got a bunch of guys together who used to play professionally. And, you know, it's not all the you know, drugs and problems and women <laughs> and all, all the drama issues anymore. And so we play, uh, you know, mostly we do power concert gigs for bigger acts. So we've, you know, we've opened for Pat Travers a lot of times and the Iron Maidens. And we just played with Last in Line. They're a Dio band with Def Leppard guys and Black Sabbath guys. And we opened for a band with Judas Priest singer and Rainbow's keyboard player and ACDC's drummer and White Stakes guitarist. I mean, we've we just play for a lot of different bands and it's a lot of fun. Right. And when we're not playing for those guys, we play other clubs and do, you know, two or three sets. And but they're all power sets. It's not like Holiday and Mon Jack. Kind of stuff. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And so, yeah, that's what we do. I mean, we write some of our own music, but mostly we're a cover band, but we do lot of twists on the covers and make them our own. So they're very different. And we're pretty hard rock. We do a lot of Judas Priest, UFO, uh, some Iron Maiden stuff. we got a great vocalist who can handle all that. And we have the best guitarist I've ever played with in my life. He he plays a V and he plays it upside down and backwards. Wow. <laughs> and he, uh, yeah, he used to play, he used to play with a band in a band that had uh, Smashing Pumpkins drummer and some other guys. So um, these are really good musicians and a great drummer, Donovan, just a phenomenal drummer. And my brother's uh, the other lead guitarist. And he and I have been playing together in and out of bands for 35, 40 years. So, yeah, that's what we do. Did you teach yourself how to play the bass? Yeah. How'd you do that? Listening? God, I don't I don't even remember. I mean, you know, I knew the strings and music and I'd played piano for, you know, so long. So I knew music's, you know, in and out. I know how to read music and I know mm -hmm. how to you know, all that. So I don't remember that learning it was a problem at all. The biggest mistake I made learning it is I learned with a pick and not my fingers. Mm. And, you know, it's a different sound, right? right? And you can play different kinds of songs with your fingers that you can't quite play with a pick. Um, but it's, it's all, it's all fine. It's all good. Yeah. Well, I asked cause I, cause I'm taught myself how to play guitar I don't know. What kind of music do you like? What's your, I mean, you said, you know, you mentioned some bands. Are you more like in the metal? Is that what you like to listen to? I like, I like hard, hard, good, hard rock. I'm not a screamo guy. I don't mm -hmm. like punk. I don't like any of that. Um, if I have to listen to music, I like Mozart, Chopin, Beethoven, okay. um, a lot, uh, Tchaikovsky, uh, and then I go to the other end and I listen to Iron Maiden and, and Priest and Deep Purple, Deep Purple wrote the soundtrack to my life, I like to say. I met Ian Gillen in a bar once, and I told him that. He, he thought that was great. Um, 
And I just saw Iron Maiden a few weeks ago for the seventh or eighth time. Um, so I'm just a, I'm just a headbanger kind of guy. And, and I used to put on a suit and go to, go to trials and things. And, and, uh, <laughs> It, it kind of, I have, a, I have like two or three different lives that I believe. Yeah. I can relate to that. I get that. I, for me, it was when I heard Jimi Hendrix. I, when I listened to Jimi Hendrix, I was like, I gotta get, I have a, hey, I'll show you actually. Since I'll be right back. Yeah. Since, since you can see it and no one else can. listeners they can just uh, imagine it i picked this up this is my, my oh yeah oh nice strap and J- jimmy hendrix is the one i don't listen to him a ton anymore but he i i would listen to like it was really access bold as love and electric ladyland and i would just be like how does he make the guitar sound like this that sound right it's yeah it's and so i just, uniquely I, hendrix yeah I, so i'm a little different in my music taste i'm more blues background so I yeah. love like BB King, Stevie Ray Vaughan, sure, Albert King. Um, oh, I like good I, blues too. I, you know, if you listen to Deep Purple, they're a blues band. Mm-hmm. If you, a blues band with classical influence, and go back, especially the older Purple, it's all blues based. I mean, you just go listen, you go, oh my god, it's all blues stuff. Uh, and then they have the classical from from John Lord, who's classical trained pianist and, and 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 his stuff. But yeah, Hendrix influenced you. The first time I went, oh, my God, and stopped in my tracks because uh-huh. I heard music was when I heard Burn, Deep Purple's Burn on the radio mm-hmm. with uh, Coverdale and in Mach, uh, I guess it was Mach 2. And it just I remember where I was. I remember what I was doing. I remember what I was wearing. And I remember going, oh, my God, what <laughs> is that? I'd never heard music like that in my life. And the keyboard stuff was all classical box stuff. And it just blew me away. And, and that's where I knew I wanted to go toward heavier rock. Uh, and, uh, and then I heard uh, and watched Getty play. And I thought, I got to play that. I want that sound on that bass. And uh, here we are. I, I don't get too heavy into to heavy rock. I do like some Springsteen's like heavier rock. So I'm a huge Springsteen fan, too. I've ta- I talk about them on almost every podcast. I'm sure everyone's noticed that by now. But uh, I, I like jam bands too. I'm into the Grateful Dead. Uh, so I've seen Dead and Company a few times. So I don't know if you're are you a jam band fan at all or is it a little bit? Much? Yeah, I mean, I you know I, I like good music of all styles. Mm-hmm. If I have preferences, those are my preferences that I told you about. Yeah, yeah. Do you, are you into lyricists since you're into reading and publishing? Do you like the lyrics? Aspect? I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the reasons I love Maiden uh, and fell in love with Maiden is because almost every song is historical. Mm. And so the, the people that don't know Maiden, when I show them the lyrics and explain to them, you know, Alexander the Great and Aces High is about the Battle of Britain. And, and it, it, it's constant. Um, they go back to history. They think about history. They write about stuff. And it's really deep. Philosophical mm-hmm. stuff, Egyptian stuff. I mean, it's really deep stuff. So I like that. Uh, and I loved uh, Rush's lyrics because Rush's uh, Neil Peart wrote, wrote the lyrics. And I, you know, I'm into Anne Rand, and I used to used to really follow her stuff, and he was into her at that time too, and and so a lot of his stuff, like Anthem and the Trees, and some of his different songs, sort of followed that that philosophy, and I just like that kind of stuff. It's 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 more than Hey Baby, 
<laughs> more than the Beatles. I want to hold your hand, something like that. Yeah. Although look at the time, right? A little different. I mean, the Beatles are, you can't beat their influence, but to me, they're, there's better bands out there. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. I appreciate the Beatles and the Stones more now than I did then. Mm. Um, I listen to them now and I'm, I like them more than I did when I was younger. I never liked the Stones ever other than a song or two. And I like the Stones now a lot more. Uh, Leonard Skinner was like that. I mean, I, I liked them at the time. You know, they're okay. And now all these years later, I go back and listen to music. I mean, this music is still good today. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Beatles are kind of like that. You listen to the music, it's still it's still good. It's it's kind of amazing. Uh, but I think they're a little overrated. But I hate, you know, saying that makes me sort of, uh, you know, non-personas, gratis, non-gratis persona or whatever you want. Anyone who's listening is a fan of the Beatles. We apologize. But I yeah. agree. I agree. I think it, it's, all, it's all subjective. I mean, hey, Springsteen loved the Beatles. So I guess yeah. I should be a yeah. fan. But well, I get it. This has been a great discussion. Is there anything you want to leave us with or any, any upcoming books you want to let our listeners know about? You know, I'm really excited about the the, the, the classic reprints we're doing. Um, when COVID hit and we were, we were having all our accounts closed down, you know, I decided that, again, I look for opportunity and I look for creating sort of my own destiny. I don't like my, my, my fortunes sitting in other people's hands. And so I decided we need to have another avenue toward getting good books produced and if we don't have to worry about the trade. And for a long time, I've been wanting to print classic reprints that were out of print that other people had done, but they did small runs and they were so expensive, you know, the average person couldn't afford them. So we went back and we published, you know, Barza's Vicksburg set and different kinds of things and and the Batchelder papers on Gettysburg and, and the people are just loving those. And we're trying to price them right. And we're getting this stuff back because future generations are going to use them to write with. Mm-hmm. And so very excited about that. So we're doing um, uh, the Antietam campaign, uh, official records, those two volumes. We did the, we're doing the Gettysburg three volumes, reprint of that again. Um, we're doing the Gettysburg papers. We're doing that, that. So th- those are, I'm really excited about those because so many people can't afford them and now they're going to be able to afford them and getting those back into print. That excites me because I want to share this stuff with other people. Very cool. I, I, I meant to ask you, are you publishing? I saw um, Eric Wittenberg has published with you, right? Oh, 10 or 12 books. Yeah. Is, is his and Dr. Klein's book going to, is that published to you or is that a different publisher? I don't know. Which, which, which title is it? It was a, like a Civil War Q&A handbook kind of. Oh, I think he did that with a different press. Okay. I didn't know. He he writes for me. Dr. Klein does. That's why I was wondering. I didn't okay. know that was through you because I knew Eric Witt- Wittenberg did stuff through you. Yeah. Um, primarily, you know, Eric and I are, he does 99% of his stuff here. We have a bigger reach and sell it better and, mm-hmm. you know, market it better and all that. Um, but he takes some of his stuff that's probably not as well suited for what we do. And he goes to, you know, to some other presses. Yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you. It's been a wonderful discussion. Hey, my uh, pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And it's good to. Yeah. I hope the listeners learn something. I hope they, if someone's got a manuscript, they know where to send it now too. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if you want to write, go on to right now and click on there and sign up. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Civil War Center podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe to help the podcast grow. 
I hope you'll join us next week. And as always, please head to thecivilwarcenter.com to learn more. And you can find us on Patreon in the link below. Please consider donating to help this podcast continue. Have a great week.